So I'll tell you, when, when I was a kid in summer camp, in sleepaway camp, I didn't go to Marsha, but I went to a different Jewish summer camp. Um, and I remember that on, on Tisha B'Av, we cried a lot. We cried about people who were sick and we cried about motorcycle accidents and we cried about all kinds of things. And never once did I, or not in my conscious memory, do I recall mourning the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It seemed like there was this need to impose upon the campers this deep sadness. And once we cried, check, you know, we cried. We did it. We accomplished. And as I grew older and learned about what Tisha B'Av is really about, I said, oh my God, you know, like motorcycle accidents, sad, but not really relevant to the day. Then I, I looked into what other camps do or what other people do on Tisha B'Av. And most of the material is Holocaust related. Holocaust is also very sad, but we have Yom HaShoah. And I do a huge production on Yom HaShoah, and it is all about the Holocaust. But Tisha B'Av is a different day. Welcome back to another episode of The Jews Next Door, where we are all about raising the next generation of passionate and committed Jews. I'm Rabbi Yerman Shal, and in this episode, we're going to be focusing on how to parent children to appreciate and really tap into the nine days, the three weeks, and ultimately, Tishbav. By way of introduction, the Chassam Sofer, who was the preeminent leader of the Jewish people in Austria, Hungary, uh, the Hungarian Empire during the first part of the 19th century, once said that whoever mourns over the Beis Hamikdash during the during the three weeks will merit to have good children. So perhaps this is because of the fact that you know whoever themselves are mourning will model this feeling of loss for their children, and their children will understand the loss. And the question that we're going to be trying to address is how how do we as parents model this? How do we help our children to really understand this loss, especially in this current world that we live in, where it feels like we don't really lack really anything? We have the special opportunity to speak to two incredible educators, Rabbi Larry Rothwax, who is the Rav at Beth Aaron in Teaneck, as well as the Camp Rabbi in Camp Marsha, and Sally Schatzkes, who is the Director of the Arts Department at Yeshiva Flatbush in Brooklyn, a registered drama therapist at uh, New York State licensed creative arts therapist with over a decade of work in drama therapy and the performing arts department head of Camp Marasha. So thank you so much to both of you for, for joining us. And also I want to just give a major shout out to Jeremy Joseph. This episode came about because Jeremy, Jeremy Joseph, the amazing director of Camp Marasha once told me about this unique play that, that you guys put on in Camp Marasha every year before Tishbov on Erev Tishbav to help get the campers into the right mood, which is directed by Sally and where Rabbi Rothwax plays a major role. And to create and play a, a role in such a play, helping children and teens to tap into the loss of the morning that we're experiencing is, is no easy feat. I mean, I can't even imagine how you guys pull it off. And I, I mean, I've seen clips of it. It looks incredible. And it really says a lot about about both of you and as well Camp Morasha for who, who really their experiential education is, is a core part of their mission and a really special thank you to Camp Morasha for sponsoring this episode and uh, for their dedication to the Jewish people and the education of the Jewish people. So thank you so much again to Morasha and thank you to, to both of you who I don't know how you're doing it, <laughs> taking time out of your busy, busy summers to take time to talk about raising the Jews next door. Thank you so much for including thank us. Thank you for having us. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's first things first in terms of this Tisha B'Av play. How did this play come about in the first place? 
So I just have to correct a, a little bit of a, a misnomer. So it's not the play. It's a play. Every year we do a different play. Over the eight years that I've been working in Camp Marasha, I have written five original plays. We've redone one um, and we did something already existing one year. Or maybe we've redone two. I lost count, but I try to write a new play each summer. So it's not just about directing the play and acting in the play. It's also pre-summer preparation in playwriting for me. And the reason that I write the play, write a play, is because I, I am not aware of any material, any theatrical material out there that seems appropriate and relevant to me for Tisha B'Av. So when I cannot find good material, I write my own material. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Tell us about that process a little bit. How do you go about creating content and that is, that is appropriate? Like you said, you didn't find anything that you deemed appropriate. So how do you? So I'll tell you, when, when I was a kid in summer camp, in sleepaway camp, I didn't go to Marsha, but I went to a different Jewish summer camp. And I remember that on, on Tisha B'Av, we cried a lot. We cried about people who were sick and we cried about motorcycle accidents and we cried about all kinds of things. And never once did I, or not in my conscious memory, do I recall mourning the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It seemed like there was this need to impose upon the campers this deep sadness. And once we cried, check, you know, we cried. We did it. We accomplished. And as I grew older and learned about what Tisha B'Av is really about, I said, oh, my God, you know, like motorcycle accidents, sad, but not really relevant to the day. Then I, I looked into what other camps do or what other people do on Tisha B'Av. And most of the material is Holocaust related. Holocaust is also very sad, but we have Yom HaShoah. And I do a huge production on Yom HaShoah, and it is all about the Holocaust. But Tisha B'Av is a different day. So I set out to try to create theatrical productions that are different from what's out there, different from what people are doing, and not seeking to just check off the box of making people cry. Actually, my shows don't often make people cry. I am about getting my audience to be self-reflective, to really sit and to think and to process. And that's why when I build my shows, I also involve the educational programmers in our camp so that we can create programming around the play. So everybody sees the play and goes directly into sheer. And we're actually doing some things uh, for to prepare, we prepare the student, the campers, and we're actually going to involve parents this year a little bit. We're preparing everybody pre-show, and then we have the post-show debrief. So it's really educational theater. Wow, that's incredible! And Robert Rothwax, what role do you play exactly in this? So I, I, I play a similar role to how I have been playing my uh, role in this conversation thus far, and that is to follow the lead <laughs> of Sally, who's just uh, an extraordinary playwright. Uh, and really a very, very gifted educator for uh, reasons that she just mentioned. If I wanted to, and I don't think that this is the purpose of this conversation, I could make a case that crying on Tisha B'Av about motorcycle accidents and certainly, you know, Lahavdil, something as extraordinary and catastrophic as the Holocaust are in fact appropriate on the day of Tisha B'Av. But Sally, to her credit, 
is doing something that admittedly, often as a rabbi, and I know many of my colleagues uh, just take a pass on, and that is really trying to take ourselves back into history and to try to figure out how to extract meaning from the essence of the day, at least historically, in terms of how this all started, uh, rather than just say, as she said, you know, we can sort of check a box. In terms of my role, I am not the playwright, certainly not. And I'll even say that when I look at Sally's scripts uh, in the beginning of the summer when she hands me one, uh, I have looked at them and say, I, I don't I don't understand what's going on here. I don't understand what the purpose of this is. I don't know how this is relevant. How's it, how does it come together? And slowly but surely, you know, as the different scenes sort of materialize and, you know, and she's, you know, she directs us with uh, she, she's very chilled and very relaxed, but really has sort of a vision that she sees through over the course of several weeks. It's rarely for me personally until the actual day itself, sometimes actually showtime, where suddenly it just it just clicks. So it is something obviously that is, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of vision and a lot of thought and a lot of creativity that goes into it beforehand. Um, I will tell you personally, I am a performer for lack of a better word, professionally. I mean, that's one of the things that I do is I get up in large audiences and I speak. As Sally knows, um, uh, there's a part of me, again, just a part of me that really, really does not like acting in place. It feels very, well, it feels scripted and it feels as if I am being told exactly where to stand, what to say, when, and having to remember even a simple line or two is something that I find you know, very overwhelming. Um, at this point, it's a little bit of a running joke between the two of us because you know I'll, I'll do anything to, so to speak, get out of my part. But I appreciate the role that I play. And it's not because, and I mean this, it, it's not because I'm, by, by any stretch of the imagination, the most most suited for this part in terms of my acting capabilities. But as the rabbi of the camp, I, I do think, and I do appreciate how it does add a lot of meaning, and I'll even say credibility to this entire effort. You know, I am, you know, I'm not much of an entertainer, even though I am a performer. And to show the kids, you know, there's the rabbi and he's sometimes wearing costumes that you wouldn't really see him wearing, even on Purim. But, you know, part of telling this story, I think that that in itself parts a very important message. So I'm I'm proud to be uh, to be part of it. It's awesome. I wish I'd have had you guys in costume today. <laughs> you were saying like, it's really, you're not trying to get them to be sad about, you know, the Holocaust, the motorcycle accident. So how do you accomplish that goal of really getting them to tap into the loss of the Beta McDush? Well, every year the play is different. So sometimes we jump back into history and I'm always researching the different things that happened on Tisha B'Av and creating vignettes from those time periods or going back into history in times of persecution and creating vignettes there. But then I always need to bring it back to today to make it relevant for our campers. So each year is a different process and I'm inspired by different themes. I'll tell you about this year's play. This year, our play is called Second Glance and it was inspired last summer after our show, which was called In Every Generation. Um, After the show was over, I was kind of debriefing with a friend. We were going for a walk and I was just looking at all the campers and and thinking about how after this like labor of love that I created, they go back to their daily lives and their um, all the things that they do in camp. And I was just kind of um, mulling over how 
how, how sometimes self-involved we can be, not just our campers, but campers everywhere and staff too. We're very self-involved. It's a self-involved generation. Um, we're the selfie generation. At least our campers are coming from the selfie generation where they are constantly looking at themselves, but never really looking at themselves. You know, they're creating these looks that they want to see in themselves. And especially in the post-COVID world, where we spend hours and hours and hours on these Zooms looking at ourselves, right? We're not, we, we're not supposed to see ourselves so much that life isn't usually, life isn't full of mirrors. But now when we carry around our phones, we're constantly looking at ourselves and taking pictures of ourselves and making faces. Anyway, I have that battle, running battle with my kids. I keep telling them, stop taking selfies. I keep, I always say, Hevel Havalim, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. I drive them crazy. But anyway, so, so I had this idea that I really wanted to write a play about really looking at ourselves in the mirror. And I, I just jotted that idea down and then I revisited it in April, which is when I start to think about camp. Right after I do my, my big Yom HaShoah show, I start to think about camp. And I came back to this idea of looking in the mirror. And so the show is, is called Second Glance. So it asks us, what, what do we see when we look in the mirror? And then what do we see on second glance? And the the goal of the show is to really ask our audiences to go back to the mirror and but before they go back to that mirror to really stop and think how did i get here who am i what are the sacrifices and the work that people had to do in my family in my nation in my history to allow me to arrive at this place in time because we didn't just land here. Although it feels so nice to be in Camp Morasha where everything is catering to everybody and our, and everything is planned and beautiful and neatly packaged and color coordinated. And it feels so lovely. And it's easy to forget that we, we do not just stand here at islands unto ourselves. We come with history, family history, personal history, national history, collective history, so that is what the show is about. And it fe- it's about a girl named Eliza and her contemporary family. And she's looking in the mirror as most teenage, most teenagers do often. And her, her parents ask her to, to take a second glance. And so she's looking in the mirror and they begin to tell her stories about the Elizas that came before her, the Elizas that she was named for. And there's an Eliza in 1973 that she was named for. There's an Eliza from uh, 1940s and an Eliza from the early 1900s. And so those vignettes come alive. She looks in the mirror and she does these movements. And we see in a second mirror, the Eliza from the past appears doing the same movements. And then that scene comes to life. Wow. Wow. That sounds very powerful. And you're saying the debrief afterwards is where you get them to really tap into their own, you know, emotions and really making it personal. Right. Right. I want them. I want the campers to really think about Oh, okay. So who sacrificed or who worked really hard in order for me to be here today? And once they're in that mode, I had to think about once I get my audience into that mode, 
I then have to provide them with some content to latch onto, right? I, they may be willing to look in the mirror and say, okay, where do I come from? Who am I named for? And they may not be able to answer that question. And that's why we're going to do some parent involvement. We're going to be sending out an email, I believe, on the day that this uh, episode is going to air, which is going to ask our campers parents to write a short letter to their children about either the person that they're named for or a person in their family who sacrificed in order for them to arrive at this place in time. So this way, hopefully I'll get them in that mode and then give them some content, some personal content that they can actually hold on to. Wow, that's very cool. And then how do you connect that back to the loss of the base of McDush? It's so layered. I mean, I think that we can't really step into loss without first becoming self-reflective and self-aware. We cannot empathize or step into someone else's loss or some other time's loss without being self-aware. So if I accomplish a deeper sense of self-awareness, I feel that I've accomplished something. And then because Mara Shah has wonderful, wonderful programming, and because I'm working with the educational staff, I am hoping that we will build on that self-awareness as we go into Echa and the keynote and all the programming that happens around that. Got it. Wow. Yeah, I think that was, uh, I, I think that's a very important point because some of Sally's productions have offered, you know, vignettes that bring us all the way, all the way back, you know, 2000 years. Uh, some of them as the one that was just described. And by the way, even though Sally says they don't always make everybody cry. I, I don't know about you, Rabbi Michelle, but even though I heard the concept already, I am brought to tears once again, as I sit here, just hearing the concept, it is very, it is very chilling. And you see how it, it you know, it includes a very, very thoughtful method of, of education. And while, you know, the kids of Marisha, and I would say by extension, the staff, even the adults are the direct beneficiaries of this sort of thoughtful and creative educational model is something that uh, we would all benefit from in all forums. You know, if only, I don't know that I would be able to pull it off, but if only I can, you know, reach out to the parents, the living parents of all my congregants in shul and try to, you know, pull off a similar stunt, if you will, I think it would be extraordinary. But I, I just to go back to the point that we're saying, it, what, what Sally does, I think, very, very effectively is she she creates bridges from present to past. That is not simple. And I think what she meant, and I don't want to speak for Sally, but like the motorcycle accident, there must have been something that happened right then and there. And so you could touch it, you could feel it. Even the Holocaust, and not to suggest that this is easy and simple for our generation, I think there are still you know many among us who can still feel like we can touch that, that those of us who still have or have met, you know, survivors and have seen the numbers on their hands, there is something that remains that's real, that's tangible, that's, that's concrete. Once you go back a hundred years or something that doesn't loom quite as large as the Holocaust, it becomes a real, real challenge for us. And I think, you know, what Sally does very effectively is create that bridge. Once the bridge is created, it's actually not quite as difficult to go ahead and to just go back another 500 years, another thousand years, 50, because the concept is there already. Where, did, like she said, where, where did we come yeah. from? Uh, you know, and the, the pass off, if you will, to the programming and educational staff over here is, is, is almost seamless at that point because the kids have been primed to be able to think of, you know, not, you know, what did I do this morning and, you know, what, what are we having for lunch? But, Right, but right. The, the the world and our history and our people is so much larger than we 
ever appreciate in the moment. Sounds so powerful. I wish I can come up to Marshad just to experience it. I'm sure we can get you a guest pass if you want. (laughs) Sounds good. So I'm curious, how, how can parents, you know, we don't all have that mind that Sally has to be able to create that bridge, like you were saying over Rothwax. How can parents, in a way, create that bridge and is, is there a way that parents can create that bridge in order to help their children to somewhat to be able to tap in a little bit into what's the, you know, the loss or even just to self-reflect how it, it, all of these different, you know, the, the themes that you've brought out over the years. Is that something that parents can do without having a full on play? Um, and, you know, through through your both of your creative minds and your incredible educational minds. What are your what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's a really good idea to take some time to sit down with your kids and talk about your family history on Tisha B'Av and then to ask the question, why are we talking about this? Why is this relevant on Tisha B'Av? I think some of the, you know, it, it is, it's very difficult to step into loss that happened so long ago. And when it comes to, for example, the Holocaust, we can still touch it. But I know I'm very conscious because I work very intimately with Holocaust survivors. I'm very conscious of the disappearing of their generation, the passing of their generation, and how the Holocaust as a as a as a collective tragedy, as a collective trauma, is slipping away from us. And that in in time, in in coming years, it will be something in the past that is harder and harder to touch. And that's a loss in itself, right? To lose the ability to touch our past, our trauma, our loss is a loss in and of itself. And so to me, I am mourning the loss of the ability to connect to the Hurban of the Beit HaMikdash. And so just to talk about that, as opposed to focusing on exactly what happened and, and who was there and what did it look like? Just this idea that our history is constantly being made and lost and how do we hold on to it and how do we allow it to slip away without, uh, without completely losing touch with it? How many, I mean, how many events happen? How many awful pogroms and, and moments of persecution happen in our history that we are not connected to because we don't even know about them. And they're, they happened so long ago. So just to have that conversation, I think is important with our kids. And also to not, we need to be able to acknowledge that we cannot carry out this form of mourning for 24 hours with our children. It's not reasonable that on a, a 25 hours of, of a summer day that we are going to really um, be able to insist or force our children to be in a state of mourning for that long. I mean, even, you know, God forbid when a child is experiencing real grief in their family, it's a very difficult thing to get the child to sit down and process the loss. Developmentally, they're not even able. It's hard for adults developmentally to process loss. So for a child to be in a state of mourning or grieving over something that happened thousands of years ago for 25 hours is just not realistic. But to set a goal 
of a moment of real conversation and self-reflection that is not happening on every other day of the year, only on Tisha B'Av, a conversation, a special conversation in a special place or with a special permutation of people in your family. That I think is, is a reasonable goal for parents. Yeah, totally. I'm curious just uh, in terms of the age, you know, what age do you think that children are able to handle that type of conversation? Rabbi, you want to answer? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, before I do so, I just want to uh, echo something that Sally just said, because I think it's a very important point here. And I know that the, the conversations that you have on this podcast generally are about chinuch and parenting. So this is probably a theme that is is recurring in your conversations. And that is that we cannot expect this as parents to train, to educate, to inspire, to inform our kids regarding anything that we ourselves are not, you know, attempting at the very least to, 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 to tap into. Uh, that applies to everything, right. but it certainly applies to something which is, I'll call an avodah shabalev. And mourning, Rav Soloveitchik actually said, is an example of a mitzvah where, you know, there are perhaps things that we do, but ultimately it's about what we feel. And if we don't feel, uh, we may get lucky. You know, our kids may somehow Maybe because, and I mean this seriously, maybe because they attend attend a camp like Marsha and are inspired at moments like the, the like the plays that we're describing. It, it may come from elsewhere, but it's not going to come from parenting. So I would say, you know, we have a period of three weeks, and if, as Sally just said, you know, the goal is to try to create a moment, a moment on the day of Tishbev that allows parents twenty days to prepare. And how do I prepare? Well. By thinking for myself, what is the loss that I feel in my life? You know, how can I connect to the Korban? Can you imagine how powerful it would be for a child to see his or her parent sitting on the floor on Erev Tisha B'av, eating the Sudamav Sekes with a tear rolling down their face? And again, maybe maybe a little frightening for some really young children, but you know, but but if 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 they don't see that, which is understandable, we can't we can't all do that. And I'm not suggesting that we fake it. So again, we, we just have to be understanding as to, you know, what our kids are going to be able to receive from us. So how, how to, to interject for a second. So how can adults tap into the loss a little bit more, especially meaning our generation is just as removed in a way as our children are. So how can the adults and everything the that Sally said before, and I was thinking this is, you know, she, she is here. We are here to educate children. These messages, th this approach is not unique for children. And I think it works for adults as well. And whereas Sally said before, not everybody always cries. That may be true. All the adults in the room cry at her place. All of them. They are, in, in some cases, really, really speechless afterwards. The kids, depending on their age and stage, some will be very moved. All, for the most part, will be reflective, which as Sally said is sort of the stated goal over here. But, you know, we, we are, at the end of the day, we're just... We're just older kids. That's what we are, you know, and to the, the challenges that, that Sally started this conversation off with, the fact that we are the selfie generation and that we are so, we, we lack the time and the ability and the focus to be introspective. These are all real barriers when it comes to developing any sense of spirituality. So we can, you know, broaden this conversation, just talk about prayer in general, how challenging prayer is. So what's the answer? The answer is, I hate to sound like, you know, this is not the answer to everything, but let's start by disconnecting, by disconnecting literally and figuratively a few times during the day. You know, and that can mean many, many different things, but, you know, for starters, it means literally turning our phones off, you know, when we're davening. If we can't do that, so, you know, it's over before it started. 
then we're, we're not even showing up. So uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but I really do believe that anyone who says, you know what, for an hour a day, you know, you can say a half hour a day for the, for the, for the period of three weeks, I'm going to disconnect. Again, meaning literally and figuratively, whatever that means. And I'm going to try to find material that I can read and engage in moments of, of introspection, you know, his bodhisattva, if you will, you know, uh, moments of just contemplation where I'm, I'm just trying to create those bridges again, without all the, you know, without all the dramatics, because those are helpful tools. And by the way, I believe there probably are a lot of materials, dramatic materials that a person can access online. I remember in the summer of 2020, when I was basically trying to create a virtual Tishabab program for my entire shul, I was still introducing the, introducing the keynotes on Zoom, but I was pulling a lot of stuff off of probably YouTube for the most part. And there was some actually really, really powerful materials that they're out there, you know, illustrative, you know, videos of, you know, bringing us back to the court Mason, actually very, very powerful materials that are available to us. Uh, and I think, again, I think if we're, if this is something that we want, I think we can. I want to say, and this is not in any way whatsoever to be, God forbid, a disparaging uh, knock at anything on something like Chavez Chaim Heritage Foundation as an example of an organization for several decades now that have been putting out extraordinary you know, materials and reaching tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, thousands of people one day. That's not what we're talking about over here. You know, those are successful efforts to try to create meaningful content for the day of Tisha B'Av. And they try to find that line. You know, but I mean, if we were really honest, it is a little bit of a distraction. It's okay. It's okay. But it's making the best of an otherwise difficult situation. So there you have sort of an implicit acknowledgement from, I'll just say, the entire Jewish world, the Haredi world, you know, that this is really, really, really difficult. And so therefore, we're not, you know, asking rabbis to get up there to talk to adults about what happened at the time in the court of Mason English. We're talking about issues like Lashon Hara, which is really, really important. And maybe, you know, with connecting it back to, so this is, this is challenging for all of us. And I'll say one more thing. We can acknowledge that to our kids. I say this to parents all the time. You know, the greatest gift that we could give, provide our children is being honest with them in, in every situation for the most part. And letting them know when, when we find something difficult and challenging, as opposed to pretending we've got this figured out and say, you know, mourn. <laughs> it's just not that easy. So getting back to the question of in terms of the ages, what ages would you say it's appropriate to start these conversations with our children? And then I guess, you know, when, when we're dealing with children who are either not yet of that age or who are, you know, older than that age that, you know, how do we help them? Yeah, I'll, an, I'll answer this very quickly because I've, I've been, you know, hogging the mic here and then I'll pass it off to Sally. Sally point, used a very important word before and that is, you know, developmentally, you know, Chazal were very cognizant of the fact that, you know, there are developmental stages within emotional development and cognitive development. And so there is a concept of an age of chinuch. And even though there is a little bit of debate, because this is not, you know, there's no concrete stage or age, you know, I think for the most part, we assume that, it, you know, before the age of six years old, and again, in some cases, maybe seven or eight, a child, you have to assume for the most part, is just not really able to handle and to process messages having to do with perhaps mourning in general, but particularly mourning the base of Mignesh. So it's almost as if there's no real value in trying to impart that. Now, again, you know, we don't, we don't disassociate ourselves from our kids during the period of three weeks we were in Tisha B'Av. We still have to parent them, but we don't try to necessarily bring them in. And so therefore, some of the restrictions, uh, the observances of mourning this time of year, they don't apply to children who are too young. You know, and, you know, even though technically a, a boy at the age of three years old doesn't have to wear tzitzis, 
you know, many say, you know, once you're three years old and you're old enough to like know what it is, we put it on. But it, 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 you know, this is very different. This is very different. But then as children graduate to new stages of development and, and are able to achieve, you know, higher le- levels of understanding, uh, so then we can introduce new layers. We have to be aware that some of the imagery associated with mourning and even in Sally's place sometimes can be a little unsettling. I mean, they're not scary for kids per se, but some of the noises and, you know, there have been some very dramatic scenes, which usually end with the lights going off. You know, you, you, we run the risk of having, you know, eight, nine, 10 and 11 year olds who are really scared in the moment. And I, I don't think that that's the goal here. We're not trying to make, you know, kids scared. So just um, I, I'll say one other thing and then Sally, you'll, you'll chime in. And then I think another another really exceptional feature of Sally's productions is that they really do reach all, you know, using a Talmudic term, it's like a Dabar Shavachal Nefesh. Not everybody is necessarily walking away with the same message and certainly not on the same level, but you can hear a pin drop. And I mentioned before, you know, the adults in the room uh, are brought to tears and all the kids are, are, they're connected to it. And, you know, one of the reasons it's, it's, it's amazing that the way this is set up is they go immediately, you know, into their chinuch groups to, to, you know, capture that moment and to channel it is because, you know, you know, not every child and not every group of children are necessarily going to be able to sort of process it and distill it in the same way because of their mm-hmm. developmental stage. It's incredible. It's incredible. So I'm curious on that, on that note, in terms of like, you're mentioning that certain sounds are, you know, scary. And also even just the idea of constantly talking about loss, I guess, how do you both in camp and then parents in general, how would he, how do we strike the balance between setting this tone of loss while, you know, still having, you know, like, like you said, Sally, you said before, you can't have 25 hours straight of just loss and, and mourning. So how do we, how do we strike that balance? So I'll tell you, like I said before, if, if parents can set aside uh, a time to create a moment, then that is a reasonable goal. For me, this is my moment. When I put on this production and our our campers are, are doing the prep before and then they're seeing the show and then they're going into their shirim, that's the moment that we're creating. And I hope that it stays with them. But I'm not sure that it will as the fast goes on and the day is hot and long and exhausting. Um, But if we've created a moment, then we've been successful. Um, The other thing that I want to say is that I believe very strongly that um, when it comes to loss, there must absolutely be an outlet of creation that goes hand in hand with experiencing loss. And so when we are teaching our children uh, or educating our children about something that involves loss, we need to give them a creative outlet. And for younger children, that may, may mean drawing a picture or picking a word or a movement or something really simple. And for older children or adults, that may mean writing a letter or a poem or something. But in in all the years that I've been working um, with Holocaust survivors in this program, this incredible program called Witness Theater, which started in Israel under the name of Edut, um, I have learned and, and believe strongly that 
if we are just taking in trauma and trauma and loss and grief, and we do not have anything to do with it, not someone to talk to, not a conversation to have, not a piece of art to create, then that loss lives inside of us and does not find a home in a way that allows us to be functional humans. And and we saw this, it happened um, a lot with I mean, generational trauma, it happens a lot. Um, but uh, this program that I, that I work with, uh, that I work in with Holocaust survivors became about because there was a drama therapist 20, 30 years ago in Israel whose parents were Holocaust survivors and she could not hear their stories because they would just sit in her and she didn't know what to do with them. And so she created this program that is, that involves drama therapy and an eventual, um, theatrical production of the stories as a way to take that loss and turn and create with it and turn it into something um, beautiful and productive and functional and aesthetic. And so I think that in those moments that we create with our children that involve educating around loss, that we also need to provide a space for them to express themselves. And you know your children best. If your child expresses themselves best through art or conversation or song or music or however it is, and depending on their age, we must absolutely provide some kind of creative outlet so that they can process and express. Hmm. I love that. Arthur, you want to anything you want to um, add? I, I, all I'll say is that uh, regarding having conversations with kids around loss, uh, just relating this to more sort of, I would say, relatable, perhaps not necessarily typical, but uh, situations that come up from time to time, particularly as I've, ex- as I've experienced in a rabbi, as a rabbi, when there's a, a real loss of, let's say, a relative, and there are children involved, let's say, you know, having lost a parent at a young age, or sometimes grandparents, or more tragically, if a child passes away. So we are always very concerned, naturally, about the kids, what are we going to say to them and um, how are we can explain it? And of course, we worry, understandably so, about how they're going to handle it, you know, today, tomorrow, in a week, in a month. And I don't want to oversimplify what I'm about to say, because obviously every situation is unique. Um, but I think by and large, kids handle loss pretty well, you know, compared to the way sometimes adults do. Uh, there's a certain an, an innocence, a simplicity of their understanding of the world. And uh, obviously, how we explain and what we say um, and the words that we use and the words that we don't use are important. I think there's a tendency that we sometimes have to try to, uh, you know, sanitize, for lack of a better word, um, words such as death. And we use other words instead, you know, so that somebody is, is with Hashem now. Um, as an example, there may be a value to that in, in some situations, but I, I don't think personally, uh, and I'm speaking right now, as, as a father, I'm speaking as a rabbi and as, you know, as a mental health professional, I don't believe that it is appropriate or necessary for us to go ahead and to always look for other words, you know, for something like death and to the children at very young ages can hear the word that someone died. And what does loss mean? And what does it mean that we once had something and we no longer do? Again, we don't want to frighten kids. We don't want to overwhelm them. And we don't want to in any way whatsoever create for those who are especially 
uh, predisposed to being anxious in general, to make them more worried and anxious about what's going to be in the future. But we have to understand that if we try to protect them from, you know, from just the realities of life in the short term, we don't do them, you know, much of a service. I remember many years ago, I was unfortunately at a, at a funeral for a man who passed away at a relatively young age and his daughter, who at that time was close to 20 years old, had never been to a funeral before. She just never been to one. She had never been to a cemetery before. And now again, I, I'm not suggesting that parents should, you know, routinely take their children, you know, on field trips, you know, to the cemetery or to bring somebody to the funeral of a, of a, of a stranger. But all I'll say is my children have actually been to, to funerals because when it's even, you know, potentially appropriate, we'll say to them, you know, maybe this is, this would mean something to you and to the family. And there's an important process that is happening developmentally at such a time, which prepares them for some of the realities of life. I guess I didn't say what should be obvious. It was, it was much more traumatic for that almost 20 year old girl to have to be at a cemetery for the first time when they were putting her father in the ground. I know that we've gone a, gone a little bit off the deep end over here, but I, to, I, I do think this is relevant to this. Kids can have conversations around loss. They can hear about the tragedies, the traumas, as Sally said, of our past. As a people, uh, on, on a national level, to speak about the destruction of communities, and even as we sometimes focus on Tishabov, on the loss of a single individual. Uh, we have to be thoughtful about how we communicate these messages, but kids can handle it. And sometimes they actually can handle it much better than and we can. And so we really want to think about, you know, how to be mechanich our children in a thoughtful way in this regard and not, not fear that we're going to, you know, set them on some sort of dark path and they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to fall into, a, you know, a state of depression uh, because they've been exposed to, to life and death. These are parts of the world, you know, up until pretty recently in history, it was very much part of the world. It was an escapable part of life. You know, people up until pretty recently in history just died at home. You know, children saw death. It was just part of the routine. And we have come up as a, as a society, we have come up with ways to sort of, you know, siphon off death, you know, a way that we don't really need to confront to deal with it. Uh, Tisha B'Av is, is a very, very healthy time of the year, which brings us back as a people and as opportunity for individuals as well to confront some really, really heavy ideas, but again, parts of life. Yes, Sally, you want to say something? I was just going to say that this is a unique kind of loss because it's collective and it's more of kind of like an outside looking in than an inside looking out, right? We're not experiencing the stages of grief that God forbid we experience when we lose somebody in our, in our intimate circles. Um, so, so we're not risking, you know, we're not talking about putting our children into these stages of, of grief. We're, we're talking about, let's take a, let's take a broader look at this loss. This is not a loss that is dangerous for us right now. It's not as it's not as hot. It's not as raw, which is why it's more challenging to tap into, but also why it's it's a safer kind of trauma and national trauma. And and we're mourning collectively, right? I'm mourning and Rabbi Rothwax is mourning next to me and my and my the campers are mourning next to me. So we're all mourning together. And this is a very healthy way of of approaching loss. So it's different. It's, it's different than uh, mourning a death, a close death, but also a, a really great opportunity and, and great teaching moment for children and adults alike. I think of it, I think of um, when I, when I was preparing for this podcast and thinking about the show, I kept coming up with this metaphor of, of a bracha, right? What is a bracha? 
pardon the flappish accent. I don't say Tisha B'Av or Bracha. I say Bracha and Tisha B'Av. Uh, that's where I come from. Um, anyway, so what is a Bracha? Why do we say a Bracha? What's the point? Anybody want to answer? <laughs> why do we say why do we say brachot? We we usually speed through them, right? We it's just something that's so almost like just like falls out of our mouths. But the point of a of a bracha is to slow us down and make us think before we do something meaningful. Sometimes I feel, especially in Camp Marasha, like I wish there was a bracha right before I went for a swim in the lake. What a beautiful, reflective, solitary experience that I have when I swim in this gorgeous lake, which I try to do on the daily out here. And I wish there was a bracha for that. So I make up my own words. So, so going into, so, so when we look in the mirror, right, we need to take pause when we're going into a meaningful day like Tisha B'Av, we need to take pause to acknowledge ourselves and to acknowledge our creator and to acknowledge our history. And so if all we do, if all my show does, or if all our uh, listening parents do is create a moment in which we can take pause and acknowledge where we came from, who we are, and even where we are going, right? Right. Me'ayin bata ule'an atah If we just create a bracha, a moment, then that in itself is a huge accomplishment. And our brachot can be quick, they can be momentary, but when they're meaningful and when they have kavana, it's better than hours long of programming that is exhausting and and heart wrenching that we just want to forget about and move on from. You know, I, you know, when I listen to Sally, yeah. it, it reminds me, and this is a point that I don't think has been stated yet, and it should be, and that is that there's a tendency that we all have uh, to view the three weeks as being a period of time we just we just need to get past this. It's just it's here. It'll be over in three weeks, you know, and before you know it, it's in nine days, and okay, and then oh, it's over. It's behind us. And it's so unfortunate. You know, Rabbi J.J. Shafter once pointed out that if there would be a fast day that would be observed for every program that ever took place, we would never eat. You know, we, we have to appreciate what Chazal have done for us. We have a really, really, really tragic history. And they have essentially told us to focus on that tragedy, you know, primarily, not exclusively, primarily during a relatively short period of time of the year. For the most part, you know, we're supposed to walk around being happy and positive, uh, even though our history doesn't necessarily inform that. That is that is the way we are supposed to live our life of Jews. But the three weeks is it's an opportunity to really, as Sally said, slow down and to really confront ideas and feelings that we would probably otherwise just push off and defar again and again and again. I, I just don't want to deal with this now. The fact that it comes out during the summer, even more so. I mean, this is the, this, you know, <laughs> God knows what he's doing, but this was the most inconvenient time of the world. You'll forgive me to actually go ahead and create a time of mourning. But on the other hand, for reasons that have just been stated, it's actually a special time because a time that our kids are not necessarily tethered to the routine of life. And in this setting that is by 
just by nature. It's more experiential and allows for a lot more, you know, flexibility. You know, this is a time where we can really embrace, and I won't say enjoy, you know, this, it's not the time of the year we should enjoy and anticipate and look forward to, but if we're here, it's something that, you know, should really, as Sally said, I can't say it better. You know, we, we should pause and we should reflect and we should really grow from this time of the year. I know we're talking about the nine days play or the Tishaba play, but it is really, it is a detail and a much larger picture of what we're trying to do here in camp. And I think what we should, what we should all be thinking about, you know, what we can accomplish during this time of the year. So true. Wow. 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 You are both incredible. It's, uh, it's, I, I, I love just getting to hear your, the way your thoughts are and the, the way to, to, to pick your brains on this. This is, this is incredible. As we, get to wrap up a little, would you say that there are any other themes or any other things that parents don't think about when it comes to, like you both said, not getting over these themes, but experiencing this loss and helping both themselves and also giving, being, being able to help their children to process that loss as well? I mean, I think it's a, like Rabbi Rothwack said, it's an opportunity. And God knows we have a lot to learn. We could learn for the, every day about our history for the rest of our lives and not even make it through a fraction of Jewish history. So if we take the time as adults, because I mean, to be honest, who's really doing this? But if we take the time each year, maybe once a day during the three weeks, maybe once a day during the nine days, or maybe just even on Tisha B'Av to learn about a piece of Jewish history, then we are bringing the past into the present. We are actively commemorating and recalling and reliving and bringing all our history into our present. And, and that's how we keep our nation alive. Right? We have every, yeah, every year we have a Seder, which is an experience, a physical, uh, audible, visual experience of a really momentous event in our history. And that's how we keep it alive. And that's how we keep our kids engaged, right? And we make the Seder for our children. So this is another kind of moment in our Jewish calendar where we are actively bringing the past into the present. And we have thousands of different events that we could bring up at this time of year. But if we don't know about them, we can't bring them up. So I think as parents and educators and adults, it's a really great opportunity to ed educate ourselves. And then whatever it is that we learned to share that with our children. Did you know that this happened? Did you know that this individual existed? Did you know about this, this sacrifice that this person made? Did you know that the person who you're named for lived in this kind of way? Uh, there's a, a million different possibilities that could come to fruition on this day for us as adults and as educators and as parents. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Rothwax. Is any, any, any other thoughts that we want to share? As we wrap up, I'm realizing at this point in the conversation, it's always better for me to lead rather than follow Sally because she's always a tough act to follow. No pun intended there. I guess, and I, this, I'm probably just repeating a theme that, that I mentioned already, but w when it comes to certain areas of tradition and observance and even halacha, we have to realize that the primary goal is an internal experience. We could argue more broadly that it's true about the Torah in general. You know, the Gemara has a very profound statement, Rahman Aliba Ba'i. I'm not quite sure how to translate that into Sally's vernacular. Rahman Aliba Ba'i. But, yeah, okay, good. Which basically means Hashem desires our heart. And 
we, we, you know, we, we would do ourselves a great favor if we reminded ourselves that each and every day. But when it comes to certain areas of Allah, prayer being one of them, mourning being another, and there are others, you know, tshuva coming up just around the corner. The ultimate goal is to bring us towards a greater sense of awareness, and it's an internal experience. It's supposed to be an emotional awakening, if you will, that takes place. And that's more important than anything else. And I think that people really need to, to ask themselves a question. You know, what do I need to do for myself in order to begin to move that needle? I don't, I don't think we have to worry quite as much as to whether or not this conforms, you know, with a particular set of instructions that I've been given. You know, there are really very few restrictions that apply during the three weeks and the nine days. And as you can appreciate, like every rabbi, I'm always getting questions about, you know, what about this? What about that? I can't necessarily come up with a creative way out for everybody in any, every given situation, but there's a tendency, you know, that I have to try to, you know, help people where they are and get to where they want to go. But what I often find myself saying is when it comes to, let's say, to listening to music without getting into a conversation about listening to music the time of the year, it's not. But if what I'm going to be doing is trying to come up with as many ways out of that so that I could make it up until the day of Tisha Buff and maybe itself listening to music. So the question is, have I succeeded? Or maybe I've really forfeited, you know, a wonderful opportunity to deprive myself of something that at the end of the day, you know, I enjoy music, but it's it's really not such a big deal. And that small gesture of just saying, I'm going to do things a little differently, you know, forces me into this corner where I have to then say, okay, so, so why, what is this all about? These are prompts. The goal over here is not that we should not listen to music. That, that, these are all prompts. These are all designed to, to sort of get us to stop and to pause and to think about, you know, how I can think about myself in the world differently. And I hope that we've given enough examples this morning about the types of ways that we can engage with that and we can think about mourning and loss and connecting work with our past and where we came from. You know, once we feel that that's the goal, I think that each and every one of us who is listening right now will be able to feel, okay, I, I know how to do this. And it's different than trying to figure out the technical dimensions of a sukkah. I mean, that, that's a very technical question and it's not about how you feel. It either fits the qualifications or it doesn't. This is different. This is different. And it's one that is an avodah shabalev. And I think people will really should trust themselves and follow that road and see where it leads you. And if you try, whatever you accomplish will, by definition, be a success. It'll, you know, you'll move that needle a little bit and, you know, continue to hopefully be inspired to move in that direction going forward. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. This The idea that we discussed in terms of both you know, parents themselves just being able to tap into what their what their own loss is and being able to like, like you said, Sally, having that conversation with their children about, you know, things that they're, they're self-reflecting about and bringing it to be, to be more personal. And the ideas that you're, that you're doing in, in camp have really, this is, I mean, for me personally, this was a very enlightening conversation and I, I really appreciated both of your time. And thank you so much for helping us to, to raise the, the Jews next door, really. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Jews Next Door. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'd love to hear your takeaways. Reach out to us. Reach out to me at yair at jenoff.org. Hi at jenoff.org. Check us out on the website. You could leave a question there. We'd love to be in touch. Please be in touch. Check us out on Instagram at Parenting the Jews Next Door. Hit me up on Twitter at Yair Manchel. And we got, we're on TikTok now too, Parenting the Jews Next Door. So you want to check us out. We have some great content, a lot of really great insights into parenting, tips, parenting pointers, reaction videos, and quotes. We have a lot going on. We have a lot of articles. You want to check it out. Check it out at jenoff.org. You won't be sorry you did. 
And I look forward to hearing from you. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure you subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Looking forward to another great episode next week.